Hello and welcome to the Random Works podcast. Today I have Dr. Louis Soengson, who is a serial entrepreneur and a medical device expert, currently acting as MIT's first venture builder in artificial intelligence and healthcare. Louis holds a PhD in mechanical engineering from MIT as well as a bachelor's degree in biomedical engineering from the Monterey Institute of Technology and a master's of science in bioengineering. from Johns Hopkins University his training includes medical device design development and manufacturing as well as clinical testing and deployment of healthcare ventures more fundamentally louis has made significant contributions to the fields of biodesign education bioengineering tissue engineering synthetic biology and artificial intelligence Lewis work has been published in various high impact journals such as science research that has also led to several patented biomed technologies and collaborated in the creation of host startup companies internationally welcome lewis it's a pleasure to be here so lewis you have had a very phenomenal journey through science and all so how did it all start for you was science and engineering something always on your mind growing up as a kid were there any familial influences out there or were there any teachers back at school who inspired you to chart a course through science and how did and how and where did this fantastic journey all start yeah so I mean I was always a very curious kid I think anyone that would you know um have similar profile profile to me you know it, it would be common to see that there is some internal curiosity since since being very young um so yeah I I I certainly was a very you know um uh, clever um curious kid since since my youth uh but but i have to say that i never had a any formal scientific training kind of like growing up until very late in my life um i'm actually the only scientist and as far as i know the only engineer in my family uh, uh as uh, of all the family that i know uh, back in mexico um i was raised uh, born and raised in mexico city so my first language is spanish And, and yeah my family you know it's it's just full of you know really normal hard working people that you know they they value practicality and real world things um so i was a little bit you know always kind of like a little bit of odd i guess in that regard always looking at the ants and asking why things were the way they were and uh, probably nagging a lot of my uh, both my friends and also you know the people around me about kind of like continuous questions about everything that they just couldn't potentially respond because there was always a, why does this happen and why does this happen and every single answer there was another why um so in any ways curiosity was certainly certainly there um so how how did i decide though to to go to science and engineering well i think it it really started when i was i guess 10 10 to 10 or 8 years old and i i remember back in the day discovery channel was um you know a pretty well watched around the world and uh it was one of these you know sort of channels that i was looking at and and one day i saw this this episode and i don't even remember one program about a prosthetic uh an arm prosthetic and my mom says tells the story i actually don't re- even remember that because it was really probably i was eight but less than that um that i just went out 
out of my room, storming out into where she was. I just screamed that that was going to be the thing that I was going to do the rest of my life. That I was, you know, I, I, of course, I thought that, you know, prosthetics were the coolest thing ever uh, back, in, back then. But, but I kind of knew that something about health and science and technology, like STEM related to health was like in my pathway. Like it's, it was absolutely 100%. There was no doubt in my mind. Why? I don't even know. I think I was always very drawn into biological sciences, like natural sciences, you know, where animals come from, the genesis, they kind of, you know, a taxonomies of all living things. And then on top of that, I, I, I kind of like to exert control on, on some of these things, not necessarily in a malicious way, but, but, but certainly to, to understand how they work. I, I, I always believe profoundly that if you, you only understand something, deeply, truly understand something the moment you can actually control it. And, and to me, kind of like, you know, the idea of, you know, if, if you don't understand biology, then you cannot control it and vice versa. And so, um, so, so yeah, I mean, that, that was the day, you know, when I was eight, uh, you know, it just happened I and mean, everything just clicked to me and every single decision that happened afterwards was just to advance that dream, to be able to make these things happen, to build my own machines that were related to health, machines very broadly, as, as we'll discuss probably later, um, and, and yeah, so, so, you know, teachers, family, I was always very highly encouraged at, at school. Uh, I was never necessarily very interested in the school, to be honest, at the beginning. Um, I was always interested in learning deeply. Like there was no subject ever that I've ever encountered in my life that I couldn't find something interesting. Obviously not, you know, there are many things that overall as a field may not be that interesting to me, but certainly you can, I was always able to find something that I found profound and unique and key. And, you know, and I, I would latch on those things in order to then recognize that I could learn much more about that thing that I didn't know. So that led me to, you know, take, you know, many classes that I didn't need to uh, do many little projects and experiments and things in my home that just, you know, nobody knew about. And, uh, you know, not even my school required, like things like that. And it was interesting because I just remember one day, and this is just like anecdote that uh, at some point I got into origami just because kind of like this study of topology folding, it was very interesting to me. I mean, I didn't understand really what topology was back then. It was maybe I was I don't know, seven or something. And, uh, but it was to me amazing how a flat thing could become this three-dimensional object and then have like movement and you know, this was like almost like acquired these living characteristics to it. And, and so I got into origami and I remember being drilled very badly at school because I just, just because I kind of wanted to build my, my origami things at, you know, at school, you know, the, the classes were just bypassing me. Like just no, I mean, but, but the problem is that I think for them is like the exam or whatever was happening, I was there. Like, you know, I could like, you know, go ahead, pass it, you know, whatever, but I was clearly not interested. Um, that changed a little bit later, as I understand that in order to really grow your field and become kind of like, you know, top of your field, you, you need to pay attention to what's happening to, to your surroundings, especially as you mingle with, I guess, more um, intelligent and trained people in your life. Um, you know, it, it was really 
teachers in high school, they were just very encouraging, but not really, I wouldn't say a, a mentor. My mom on the other side, I have to say that I was a mentor in the sense that, so, so my mom is, um, um, she's not a scientist. Um, she, she, um, she worked very hard all her life. She lost um, her dad when she was six and her mom when she was 20 or something. And so she had to work all her life. Uh, so, so the thing that I understood is to understood absolutely from her is that the only pathway forward to brilliance to everything good in this world was very hard work. And so I can tell you that from an, a working ethics and scientific ethics, she has been my mentor, although all the training that leads to a scientific mindset obviously was just acquired elsewhere. Um, it's, it's very interesting because my mom, um, you know, was a secretary back in Mexico and she only got like a high school diploma. And one day uh, I remember telling her, uh, you know, mom, I think I'm gonna stop school because, you know, and by the way, my mom was a single mom. I, I, never, I never met my father uh, till this day. I have never met him. And, um, and she was you know, single mom working in Mexico in the eighties, you know, it's, it's hard thing. Um, and I was like, I'm gonna stop, you know, this is cool thing, you know, to, to make some money with you. And she's like, no, you're gonna, you're gonna stick to school and you can work also if you want later when you're older. But, uh, but, but, but in order to, to show you, Luis, she tells me that this can be accomplished. I'm gonna be full-time mom, work a full-time job and actually have whatever degree you get, I'm gonna get the next one. So you have to follow me. I'm like, what? Like, and, and then long story short, now she's in the Supreme Court. She has a PhD, all being a single mom in, in the eighties in Mexico, starting with a high school diploma, all with just, you know, a baby and no family support. So that to me is like crazy. And that honestly has been a mentor from like, you know, work in ethics. Um, and I guess just to finish, you know, obviously just more generally mentor wise and just like uh, people that I admire, uh, you know, certainly people like Alan Turing, um, Eric Schrodinger, Einstein, obviously, uh, you know, a lot of the great physicists, Euler, yeah, I used to, it was, it was interesting because I used to have Euler's formula, the, the one that includes, um, the, the famous one, the one that includes all the, um, um, I guess, kind of like interesting, con you know, the most beautiful constants in, in, in physics um, in, in that single equation. And, and I used to have it kind of hanging in my wall and kind of like, I, I, I know no one of my friends cared or knew about it. Uh, but I can tell you that since I was maybe 12, Euler and Gauss were like in my mind. Because there was, even though I honestly couldn't understand then what, what it meant, the profoundness of their ideas, it was clear to me that there was some beauty to them. And so from my mind, I'm in the pursuit of beauty in everything I do in science, engineering, and life. And, and actually, that's one of the reasons why, while becoming a biomedical engineer, I've also kind of like tried to explore a very broad range of things. So if I could describe myself what I do, I'm, I'm really an integrator, like a cross-pollinator of ideas. Like I would mingle with mathematicians and physicists and electrical engineering, computer science and mechanical engineers. Um, and, 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 and it is in that intersections, intersection of ideas in which I flourish uh, because I find beauty in the patterns that arise through the merging of those different concepts, which I think fundamentally is what many of the 
great physicists drive them to, to, to do the things that they do because, you know, they start with things like where did life come from and what was the start of everything? And then they go deep into those weeds and then, you know, they invent particle physics and things like that, right? But, but it's really in the integration of higher level ideas what happens. And, and that beauty is just like my mentor, my ethereal platonic men, men, mentor, if you will, uh, for my life. Yeah. That's a, that's a really, really fascinating overview of the stellar random walk through life into science, along the way guided by your immensely inspirational mother all along. And you very succinctly summed up about following her to each and every degree and all, and the inspirational role she played as a single mother in very turbulent times in the country and all. And the way she inspired you was really, really inspirational. And as well as your own innate curiosity that you have followed all along in your random walks, to both life and science, it really surmises a lot of the experiences in science, contrary to what many believe, the, the, uh, the enigmatic ideas aren't just out there that come in a flash of revelation, it is by chasing your curiosity and all, do you get to those questions? Those questions don't really just come up out as flash surprises and all. They are a product of having changed your curiosity and answering them. And as uh, looking by the phenomenal trail that you have blazed, one can very easily say that it is something that defines the very essence of many random works in science and all. Mm -hmm. And you gave a really fascinating overview. So you talked about being fascinated by maths, by engineering, by physical sciences, life sciences and all. So was it something that obviously inspired you to major in biomedical engineering in your college? And was the decision to pursue graduate school a decision that you took by your research experiences that you obtained in college? Or was it also, although you also specified having followed your mother's footsteps into each and every degree, but did that also play a role, the research experiences that you gleaned off, did it play a pivotal role in inspiring you to also go on for grad school out there? Yeah, yeah, so it's, um, I, I wish I have, uh, you know, kind of like, very romantic, romantic idea, you know, stories around why did I choose to go to, to grad school. The reality of it was that my mom, my, the, the bed that I have with my mom was basically, it was not about me having, wanting to reach her, but rather that, that if, 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 if I didn't quit my undergrad, then she would be in her master's and not quit her master's. And basically, basically the bed was, I'm not gonna, we are both not gonna quit. Uh, it, it was not like reach me, uh, but rather we're both not gonna quit whatever it is. And, you know, just as a demonstration, I'm gonna kind of be a step ahead of you, I guess a little bit like the, the carrot and the stick, right? Um, uh, to be honest, I think grad school, decisions for grad school and beyond, those were purely mine. I think, I think actually the, 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 the roles kind of flipped I think they realized that, oh, well, maybe Luis has some potential to kind of go, you know, somewhere and and she really didn't want me to quit middle way because she knew that I'd get distracted easily sometimes so I think that's the reason why she kind of like kept kept uh, kept kept um, you know perhaps but in any case um 
it, you know, my story in grad school, it really, really, that's much more fundamentally around me and some serendipitous things that happened. So um, right up on, uh, right, you know, after graduating undergrad, I started working with a couple of transnational companies. Um, um, uh, one big transnational company called National Instruments building um, basically uh, devices for manufacturing of, um, of medical equipment. And I, I worked a little bit there for a while. And to be honest, I didn't think I was going to go to grad school because I thought about, you know, just doing really cool things, machines and things that worked in the world. But then what ended up happening is that my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, who, by the way, I met on my first, on my first, on our first class, the first day of undergrad. And she's not a biomedical engineer, she's a nutritionist, but we just happened to be in the same class anyways. Uh, four years after that, um, she, we were boyfriend, girlfriend, and she uh, comes actually from a very, um, you know, family of very brilliant people. And, and she's direct, she, she's like, I'm, I'm gonna apply for grad school. And, and I'm like, grad school? And I'm like, all right, I'll give it a shot. I think this is cool. Uh, you know, and to be honest, she, she, she didn't, she, she basically encouraged me to really explore what I wanted to do. And, and she really honestly opened my eyes to, to, to what could be uh, before then. And it was, I was 22 years old at the time. I had never been out of Mexico and I had a barely speaking English or any other language. So I, my world was Mexico and I was already thinking curiously, but not uh, geographically curious. Anyway, she applies, we both apply and I got accepted into Johns Hopkins University. And that changed my life hun like 180 degrees, it's just, I'm crazy. I end up, um, uh, basically being part of this program, the biomedical engineering program at Hopkins, which is, um, um, uh, I, didn't, I didn't know it at the time, to be honest, so prestigious, uh, but, but it was, and they, they saw something about me. I, it, to, till this day, I don't know what it was. My English was horrible. Um, I go and I have the, a blast. Um, I, I build companies, I created, you know, uh, I patent technology. I, I, I build things for the developing world. I visit Nepal, India, you know, I live abroad a little bit with, during that period. I just like an absolute incredible moment of explosion, intellectual explosion of things that I couldn't believe were like there in the world. Just such shared brilliance from peers and professors and people that I just met. Uh, something that I've never honestly, unfortunately experienced in Mexico. Um, and that just like, it was like heroin to me. It was just like, I can, I get hooked up. It's just like, this is, I, I cannot go back uh, to, I mean, not to Mexico. I love Mexico, but rather I cannot go back to, to the same sort of bubble uh, that I was looking at. Uh, so, so yeah, so it was Johns Hopkins who, who led me to the path of serious entrepreneurship, serious invention, serious scientific pursuit uh, with a lens of application. So building companies, building spin-offs, building, you know, building technologies that actually reach patients. And, and, you know, I have, you know, great time. And then I come back to Mexico after my master's and, 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 and uh, my wife, uh, she's, she's also back in Mexico too. Uh, or because she ended up, she actually ended up doing her master's in, in Mexico in the uh, National Public Health Institute there. Uh, very prestigious institution in Mexico. 
and um, and so I, I ended up working for this company, which at the time was, it's called Alandra Medical, was at the time the only uh, company for design uh, and development of new medical devices in Mexico. So I don't know if you know this, but Mexico is actually number one or certainly in the top uh, three uh, producers and manufacturers of medical devices and pharmaceuticals in the world. Uh, like there are more pharmaceuticals and medical devices produced there than probably in any other you know, country in the world. Uh, but the problem is that it's all manufacturing. It's like absolutely 100% just manufacturing. There is no design and development. So all the IP, all the creativity that comes into, and obviously the added value of coming up with a new design, a new thing that solves a problem, it ends up going back to the US, meaning um, the money and the, the talent and everything kind of just always flows back. And that was a problem that I perceived in Mexico. We perceived it in the company and we, we tried to basically set up this company that was at the time the first one that um, basically we'll, we put the infrastructure and the money to put all the people together, designers, engineers, scientists, uh, clinicians together in a single roof to then allow for a professor, a student, someone, anyone with a napkin, a really good napkin idea of how to solve a really big problem. And then they, we would like help them all the way from napkin idea to regulatory approval in medical devices. And that was like amazing. We had like several different projects and that's like way longer story, but two of them went all the way from nothing to regulatory approval. And, and that was in like, maybe like three or four years. So it was amazing. And the other projects were like, you know, crash and fail to be honest. <laughs> Uh, but but that's just serendipitously what happens. And uh, at the end, the company kind of like ended up exiting a couple of these things. And there was a little exit that basically covered some of the expenses that we had before. So at the end, it wasn't really like a huge business to be made. But it was certainly an experience that also changed my life because money flows and inventiveness flows very differently in Mexico, even though, to be honest, there is the capacity to do so. It's just very, very different. Like a million dollars here is nothing. It's pin it. Like, you know, in the US, like no one builds a medical device company with $1 million, you know. In Mexico, a million dollars is like, whoa, like, you know. And 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 that just um and and, and it's unfortunate because if if resources were more available in that sense, I think there would be much more um innovation entrepreneurship happening developing countries like Mexico. Uh, or in development countries like Mexico, but you know, in any case. And, you know, from all of that it was great experience. And then what happens that my wife, um, we, we get married, um, love my life. And my brilliant wife gets accepted for her PhD at Harvard University, Nutrition Epidemiology. And I'm like happy in the company, but I'm honestly gonna follow her. Like, you know, it's like, there is no question. Like you have to, you know, she has to pursue her dreams. So, so I come here and, you know, I have actually like random walks where I get different rejections from different places because big places, even though I had, you know, honestly the background and papers and whatever, I was just so far down in the entrepreneur, in the company, in the, um, basically in the industrial rabbit hole, if you will. I mean, there is like an academic rabbit hole, but there is the industrial rabbit hole too that no one could understand why I wanted to do a PhD. And the reality is that my wife was gonna be there for six years and I was very curious. And, and there, is, there is certainly some class of ideas and level of um, thought process that you don't access if you are not mingling with the PhDs of the world, to be honest. And so, um, so I, I knew I wanted to do that. It's just like, I needed someone to accept me. To make the story kind of like shorter there, 
I, I, I happened to meet one uh, professor at MIT who interviews me for, for something else. And, and she ends up offering me a position that was supposed to be for postdocs, even though I didn't have a doctorate degree. So I ended up actually going to do research to MIT, being paid by MIT to do research, even though I didn't have the degree. And, and, and I was able to do so because I had the years of industry experience to basically substitute for a PhD. Uh, and when I was inside, you know, I work on a lot of medical devices and things like that. And um, her name is Martha Gray. And, you know, she, she's, she's certainly some one of these key figures that really allow me to enter into this world. Um, a great professor, one of the directors of the Harvard MIT program uh, years ago, but brilliant woman. She, um, I work in this program with, with her and other, other professors at MIT. And uh, somewhere within that first year, I decided to reapply for my PhD um, to different programs. And I get accepted to a couple of different ones, um, obviously in the Boston area uh, because of my wife and, and obviously MIT. And from the ones that I picked, uh, from the ones that I was accepted, I, I put all the sheets there and I looked at them and, and, and thought, okay, I'm gonna go do a PhD and I'm supposed to be learning something that I don't know. So which one of these programs is the one that is gonna include the, the, the things that I know the least about? Like what, what among all these programs I'm the least expert on? And that was mechanical engineering because, because I have never had any zero mechanical engineering ever, classes, nothing in my life. Like I, 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 I had a bunch of like electrical engineering, computer science. I, I, I was mostly at the time, mostly electrical engineering, computer science, like directed to biomedical engineering and some bio, some core bio too, but less so. And I was like, I know zero of mechanical engineering. So let's give it a shot. And uh, it turns out that supposedly the MIT mechanical engineering qualifying exams are the hardest, some of the hardest at MIT. In fact, there is like support groups and people get like, you know, super stressed and depressed and they study for like two years. So I entered my way with no fear because I didn't know at all what's gonna happen. And it was the best decision ever. I just learned so many things about so many things that I didn't know nothing about. And it was actually interesting because it was the fact that I was such an outlier, like such a different, like, it was someone that was looking at mechanistic problems in, in, in core mechanics, biology, but just that, that from other lens, but we, but, but kind of within this crowd of other people, brilliant, more mechanically sort of driven people that I was basically popping up these ideas that just like didn't think about at all. And, and that just created like a burst of ideas that, for example, one of these papers that we published that I co-first author was this idea of CRISPR materials, like, materials that the biological materials that were based on sort of kind of like the catalytic activity of CRISPR. So CRISPR is a genetic engineering thing. Uh, it's a, it's, it comes from an immune system of bacteria. It's a, it's a protein that basically kind of can be programmed in a way to locate different sections of the genome, clip them and change. So, you know, one day we sit together, a bunch of friends of mine from the program and other places at MIT and we're like, okay, so CRISPR is this thing. It's everyone's, you know, everyone's talking about it. Can we do something with CRISPR that is zero controversial? Like just like something completely out of the box. It was CRISPR materials and CRISPR electronics. And, and we ended up kind of like doing that. But those, those ideas just came about because I think I was such an outsider within that sort of context of mechanical engineering. 
And, but, but the best, you know, the best stuff, you know, I ended up working in another field in synthetic biology, which is basically bringing engineering principles, both in mechanical engineering, but mostly electrical engineering, computer science to the field of biology. And doing that kind of like ended up working on, you know, tissue engineering, synthetic biology, genetics. And, uh, you know, and, and, and again, it was just a mashup of ideas, you know, super creative, you know, beers, pizza, you know, all the time to kind of like just get ideas and then the hard work in the lab. We ended up publishing science and nature and kind of like all these good places. But to me, the most honestly, the most you know, relevant thing was that I was doing things that I just like couldn't have achieved anywhere else with no other people. And this was, you know, and, and also mingling with, with institutions like, you know, Harvard and MIT. So, so at that time, I was doing my PhD at MIT, but I also had a research appointment at the VC Institute at Harvard University. Uh, where I was actually doing many experiments too. And this was because my main advisor, Jim, Professor Jim Collins, who's um, kind of like a um, well-known researcher in the space of synthetic biology and antibiotics. Um, um, and you have interviewed obviously uh, other people from, from his lab um, and George Church. And so, so at the VSA I was working and, um, and, and it was really through the combination of these people that all these, all these things came about. Um, this new concept of wearable synthetic biology, which ended up leading to, to the latest the stuff that we released on the COVID detection face mask. Uh, all those were things I included on my PhD. And, uh, you know, it, and it was interesting because all these mechanistic wet lab, core biology, electrical engineering stuff kind of then led me to a very deep understanding of what, of the need of artificial intelligence for many biological problems. You know, obviously there is many examples like protein folding and other things where, where AI is already making a dent, but there is so much more. And the complexity of biological systems is so, so profound that AI is actually honestly one of the, our few shots of getting to understand some of these things uh, deeply. And so I got into AI. And, and now I have to say that I'm a, a published AI researcher and I think I'm pretty sure I want to dedicate the rest of my life to AI as I find artificial intelligence as a concept, kind of like the most profound thing that probably any human could be working on today. Like if we achieve artificial intelligence, that's gonna be the last, the, the, the last invention that humans will ever need to do. And, and therefore it's, it, 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 and it will be either our doom or our salvation, but um, and, and that discussion doesn't really matter that much right now, but, but, but certainly the relevance is inequivocal. It's like absolutely zero doubt in my mind or very minuscule that, that if a artificial general intelligence is possible, it's achievable, um, that, that that wouldn't be the single most fundamental trans technological transformation that I will see in my lifetime. And certainly probably many humans will see in their lifetimes, much more fundamental than fire. And, and, um, and so now I'm an AI researcher um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and honestly, I kind of want to wiggle uh, for the rest of my life, you know, have a one step of one foot in academia and one foot in industry. And, you know, as you mentioned in my bio, I'm a, a venture builder, it's called in MIT, which is this new position at MIT that tries to actually bring together these things is uh, people that have some entrepreneurial experience that also have a PhD that are at the top of their field and they give them this freedom and capabilities to really collaborate internally at MIT to 
bring together amazing science and then spun those out in things that matter to the world as um, non-for-profit non or for-profit corporations, uh, basically entities, ventures of any kind. And, you know, I wouldn't be, you know, I couldn't be more blessed of being given this opportunity. Um, I'm having a blast, uh, you know, working in startups here and there. Some of them fail, some of them work, you know, but at the end of the day, we're working towards something better. Um, and, and, and we have the data to, to, to back that up. And, and that's just something that just, you know, wakes me up every day and, you know, uh, you know, have, has me doing the same thing every day uh, and hopefully for the rest of my life now. <laughs> That's again a very brilliant overview of the remarkable path that you took that brought you from biomedical engineering to completing PhD in mechanical engineering. And now you have done the heart of a venture builder who is dabbling at the intersection of artificial intelligence and the life sciences. And as we talk about this here, uh, yesterday there were a couple of very two very big papers out there on protein structure prediction by two groups, the alpha fold group in nature, as well as the Rosetta fold group led by Professor David Baker uh, in the science. And basically these are really phenomenal times. And as you spoke about AI is a remarkable in invention and that has the potential to revolutionize humanity of the scale or even greater than what fire and wheel did and all. And you have been right into the thick of things and all. And something you uh, mentioned a lot were, um, interestingly was getting rejected and taking them in your stride. And academia, as we all know, can be a very brutal place. And it's a place that's chartered with rejections of all sorts. There's always the anonymous reviewer too rejecting your manuscripts and all. There are other forms of rejections you can face from grant agencies, conference abstracts. You can face it on myriad different fronts. And that's why it becomes very important to take them in your stride rather than getting bogged down by a couple or multiple rejections of sorts. So how do you get this sort of fearlessness in tackling them? Does your background growing up with a very stellar and remarkable mother who was an inspirational figure in her own right, who never got bogged down by all the challenges you uh, she faced? And you as a kid, you also overcame all of them and charted a remarkable course. Did, oh, that obviously played a role. And what else gives you the gumption to take these rejections in your strides and go on to scale even greater heights and all. And something that I'm curious to know, you spoke about choosing mechanical engineering right of the block, considering you know the least about it. And MIT mechanical engineering program is another summit to climb. And you spoke about you had a thrilling experience and all. So during grad school, did you also face the ubiquitous imposter syndrome? And if yes, how did you confront it? And what is the go-to way to tackle it? Because many say it doesn't really leave you whether you are a research student or a PI, the imposter syndrome stays with you in academy. Yeah, so I think to me, when I think about rejection, so, so to me, re rejection is an emergent property of, of the fact of have agency and being among other agents uh, under within in AI terms, meaning it's inevitable. Uh, rejection, if, if you're not getting rejected because you're not trying enough or hard enough or wide enough. So, so 
if you consider the inevitability of rejection, then rejection starts feeling differently, I believe, um, subjectively. Uh, objectively, it's the same. It's just a rejection. It's a no that you get, but um, but but subjectively, certainly feels different. And so, uh, to me, rejection it was um, you know never certainly something that never felt good. I never felt okay or you know as if I didn't care about you know not being rejected. Obviously, when you get rejected from some place in grad school or whatever, but but then but then you you know. But then the character of someone actually gets measured by how you get up and try again. And, 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 and you know, for my mom, of course, um, she had many different, um, I, my youth in Mexico was uh, pretty, uh, I have to say, I have a pretty happy childhood. That being said, my environment, I, I was growing up in, in Mexico when Mexico City was the most crim criminally dense violent city in the world. So, you know, it, it was very common to be mugged, to be, you know, pointed with a gun, with a knife, things like that, even if you were like a kid or, or very young, you know. Um, and, and, and the thing is that if you don't, if you don't learn how to step up, then you don't go anywhere. And, and, and I knew I, I, I couldn't uh, be anywhere because it wasn't, it wasn't me. And uh, so, so, so it really, really, I just had, I guess, kind of a little bit naturally. And I don't want to say necessarily that other people need to adopt this because I think it comes very naturally to some people. I just, you know, always was, you know, getting rejected when trying again or trying other things and then just finding those that, you know, I kind of became better at. And then that was inequivocal, that it was absolutely clear to everyone else around me that, that, that they couldn't reject me. Like that rejection was then not a possibility for them. Uh, because of the brilliant uh, around the stuff that I was doing, brilliance that of the stuff that I was doing. Um, in mechanical engineering, I have to say that I never. So so. In, I, I know many people that uh, feel imposter syndrome. I think I potentially felt at times, both at MIT, obviously in mechanical engineering, but even at Hopkins, that I, that I wasn't yet prepared for certain challenges, but I never felt I didn't belong. I just felt that perhaps it was not the right time or, you know, I, I, think, I think success is when luck meets preparation, right? I think there is, uh, you know, I don't know if it was Benjamin Franklin who, who said that. Um, uh, there is this quote, you know, success is when preparation meets opportunity. And, and I think I, I always thought that if I was feeling successful, um, it, it was not necessarily because I didn't fundamentally belong, but, but rather because one of those two variables were off. Either I wasn't prepared or, or it wasn't, you know, or I, I wasn't lucky. <laughs> so basically it wasn't the right time. Uh, so, so, so my attitude on rejection was to, to either try more, so increase the probability of just hitting the jackpot, uh, statistically speaking, <laughs> or uh, getting prepare myself for that. Um, and so, yeah, imposter syndrome is a huge deal. I think it's, uh, I, I, can, I can certainly resonate with people not feeling a, the PhD, grad school is a very stressful moment. Like there is incentives in academia that I just hate. Like um, it's absolutely stupid to me to, saw, to see that if you actually plot the distributions of positive findings versus 
negative findings in research that you find a clearly skewed distribution towards positive findings in papers, even though there is nothing in nature that says, oh, it's more likely that you find things that you don't find things. But then there's this, there's this pervasive thing in academia where if you don't publish papers that find things positively around the stuff that you're interested about, then you don't get published in the big journals or in any journal. And so there is this pressure in academia to produce, to produce, and not only to produce information, but rather to produce positive information. But, you know, uh, that 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 I think that can put is some a, a degree of pressure over people that perhaps don't find those things right away. That could be very detrimental for their mental health. And 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 I can tell you that I had many sleepless nights. Although I was a little bit of a workaholic, and my mom was too, so I had that culture. But, uh, but, but sleepless nights in the context of, of perceived failure from your peers and your PIs basically saying, oh, you're not finding anything. So you're, ergo, you're stupid. Um, I think that's something that I can certainly saw my peers feel that I felt at times. And if you call that imposter syndrome, then yeah, of course we all have imposter syndrome, but I think imposter syndrome to me, um, I think, you know, I think it, Perhaps I, I like to define it, maybe this is not the right definition, but I like to define that as a more consistent, chronic feeling around that, where that feeling doesn't go away regardless of what you do. And, 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 and that also, and the, that there is an impossibility apart from the feeling and that progresses over many, many years. Like to me, that, that chronicity, that chronic aspect is what really defines imposter syndrome. And I never, never really felt that. But, but it's a real thing and I, I, I love that you're talking about this. Um, weakness just makes you stronger. Uh, you know, if you learn, <laughs> if, you, if you fail and you don't learn anything, then that's not gonna get you anywhere. So I would say to whoever is hearing this, if you don't feel that you belong, you do belong. And, and if you fail, it's inevitable, just learn from it. And, and if nothing happens good in your life afterwards, then it was luck because that's the other variable, right? When preparation meets opportunity. Um, so, so, so people need to feel that, that this is something that they can solve, they can attain to solve. And if it doesn't, then, then there is an ecosystem that it's actually potentially driving that backwards for many people around the world. And it's something that we all need to think about and discuss and change. And I hope diversity and inclusion and these, these incentives, horrible incentives in academia to produce certain things, not other things, change because science is so profound. Science and it, it's knowledge gathering, you know, and truth searching is so precious and fundamental for everyone. That if it gets corrupted by these feelings and these subjective things and these bad incentives, then it's going to be a horrible life for every scientist in the world. Uh, and so I hope that things like this and discussing things like that changes that. Um, but if you're feeling that way, you're not alone. Uh, but but it will get better. Yeah. Those are some really great and prescient points you made. And as you talked about, there are a lot of things that we refrain from openly talking about in academia and all 
there is this whole pressure to perform and all and a lot of the way the narrative is run both externally as well as in academia with the way awards are doled out and all it makes it seem like every single year when a typically a white old man gets a plane ticket to stockholm they are the ones who are at the forefront of science but in reality science is an immensely collaborative endeavor where many people come together to contribute to the success of any single project no matter how large or how small and especially in today's times when we talk about projects like the ligo interferometer or the human genome project and all these are projects by the very nature have had the collaboration of thousands of individuals which is reflected in the papers and that is also drop in bucket because of the thousands of people required to get those things running and all and as in a very terrific christmas eve episode of random walks pranam chatterjee who is currently a postdoc in george church's lab at harvard medical school talked about there newton had us wrongly believe that science stands on the shoulder of giants but in reality it stands on the shoulder of all the research scientists technicians and graduate students out there who toil in day in and day out and due to their efforts science progresses incrementally day by day and all and those incremental advances culminate into something larger as we talked about very early on on how you took how you charted a path where you satiated your own curiosity and that's how you traverse this path this is not something that was a product of one single day or one single uh, uh, surprise or something of that sort that brought you here it was the culmination of multiple things going right and all and there is a huge degree of luck involved in these random works and all as we understand and you made some really great points these are things that we need to talk about and in a um, very in a sign of tides changing and all over the last years and decades as we have grappled with numerous issues that we are going to talk about and all uh, these conversations have started coming more and more on the front and it is a really great thing because unless or until we start acknowledging the existence of these problems no one's going to be tackling it tackling yeah. the elephant in the room and entails acknowledging its existence in the very first place and as you talked about with the diversity initiatives and all efforts to increase inclusion these have to be real efforts substantiated by the people calling the shots rather than just tokenisms and all and those are some really really great points you made and all yeah and i think to be honest it what it used to be the case when publishing so publishing is the is a field of academia unfortunately today meaning if you don't publish in these journals you know and many uh, peer reviewed journals so kind of you, you don't move places but but i think some fields are changing that game specifically computer science with all these um, you know open source you know like archive and you know other places where you can just basically post your ideas there i think i think it's uh, i think we can all create part of a new future of collaborative research where everyone gets you know basically due recognition where everyone can make a nice living and live happily you know uh while doing what they love which is science and if they don't love to do science then they can do something else right and 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 this i think it needs it, it requires the work and the acknowledgement from both the big professors but but also 
from the misfits and just the normal people that just want not to take it any longer. If you are a researcher and you have a great idea, even if you're in the middle of nowhere, put those ideas out through the internet in an archive, you know, and, and, and if those ideas merit, they will rise to the top. Um, you know, the reality though, is that those events are, you know, one in a billion, you know, one in a couple hundred millions. So how do we increase the probability that more research from underrepresented backgrounds, both ethnic, ethnically and, and, you know, nationality wise, uh, and just from socioeconomic status too, how do you, you know, rise those to the top? Uh, that's honestly a, like a big question. And I think it needs to happen through collaboration. Um, I, think, I think more people need to understand that different people from different backgrounds will give different ideas and therefore richness to the evaluation of certain ideas, as long as you have a, a good framework to order that discussion, right? I'm a big believer. My mom always taught me <laughs> that even the, even, the, even, the, even the person that picks up the trash every morning uh, can, can sometimes teach you something. And, and I actually believe sometimes any person can bring up an inconsistency, something that just doesn't make sense to them that may actually change the world if seen through the like right lenses. But you're never gonna get that if you only collaborate with your lab mates from Harvard or from MIT or whatever, who in one way or another, they come from very different backgrounds, but at some point they have become part of the same dough, unfortunately because you know they just rise to the top and so they unfortunately become a different breed now and 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 so you know adding people from underrepresented backgrounds perhaps even thinking about doing paper peer review with in the context of other scientists but maybe even people from like just normal like backgrounds i don't i don't know that could be very interesting in ethics committees for review review of ethics committees in clinical research ethical committees of review of protocols, there, there is scientists and there is clinicians, but then there is always has to be ethically a representative from the community that this thing is gonna like supposedly affect uh, upon. Uh, so there has to be like a patient advocate, if you will, a patient representative or community representative there. And that person can be like a real estate agent, a lawyer, like whatever. And that's just something that is happening in academia. And I think that's also why um, in, in a way, many research becomes very obscure to many people. Like, even though I believe science and math should be the language that everyone uses to communicate everything in the world, because it's just so robust, right? You can make predictions, it's just like, it just works, it's just incredible. And yet it's not the, the, the common way we express things. Like we, we, don't, we don't, you know, state our premises and, you know, or, or, or find inconsistencies or create a lemma or a proof about something what's gonna happen. People say, oh, I believe, or, or, you know, I want to believe this, I don't care, you know. People make decisions all, your, all their life, both rationally and semi-irrationally because they don't have that language. And I think they don't have that language because, because we have made it actually scientists very difficult for them to, to understand uh, through, through, through not including them in the process of how we create, you know, the, 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 the reports of that science, of that process. Because if they were to see how fundamentally advantageous that is, what you produce, and they, they would understand it, then they would themselves want to do it or their kids to do it. Uh, but, but, but because it's almost like scientists are here thinking about the world and you know, the things that could be, and here is the other real people that actually put the food on the table. 
it should be all the same crowd. And I think that's a fundamental um, barrier that needs to, to happen in inclusion and diversity, apart from all the obvious ones like fairness and bias, you know, that, that need to kind of like, uh, be addressed. Um, but yeah. Absolutely. Those are truly fantastic points you made. And as you talked about, increasing representation also increases the, the diversity of the viewpoints that you get to get and all. And incorporating them makes science more robust and all. It's not something just for the sake of doing it. It allows us to garner different perspectives that otherwise would not have been thought of as we are talking about the pandemic there have been reports anthropologists from MIT have studied how pulse oximeters fare poorly with people of color and their skins and all because of the physics of the sensors behind them and all or as we have seen with you with uh, we are re living in truly revolutionary times and with technologies like AI CRISPR and all the it's humanity as a whole that is on the cusp of revolution and that's why it becomes so important to have conversation on biases and all that may be inadvertently embedded in these systems and all there is this whole veneer of objectivity that's typically attached to science especially the natural sciences and all like how can maths be biased how can engineering be biased but in a, in the sense pedantically they aren't really biased that will be an absurdism of sorts but but at the end of the day, the people who do these, uh, who do science are humans after all, and a very human biases do creep into them. And that's why it becomes far more important to be aware of these issues. Yeah, I think, I think what people need to recognize is bias is in a way, like rejection, inevitable. Uh, well, as far as we all know, it's inevitable. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, bias is actually quite helpful biologically for humans and for you know animals and living systems. You know we bias behavior to certain things that just from an evolutionary perspective or just you know basically give us a gave us some advantage. So trivialization of ideas, you know, it, some you know this idea of like hate speech gets amplified, things like that. It just responds to some honestly core biological processes that probably are happening there. So so. The things that people need to recognize bias is inevitable. That being said, it's not a, it, 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 it's not immutable, meaning it can be optimized or you know optimally reduced, if you will, or, or you can attempt to do so. And in fact, it's our ethical duty to do so. And we know that, like that's just basically not a discussion really. I think what's unfortunately though blurring this conversation in a bad way, in a, in a dangerous way, actually, I believe. It's, it's this idea, for example, that, so, so I think bias, bias conversation can, can take many shapes of form, both that are useful and not useful. So I think increasing representation, you know, it, it, it's all good, but then, but then sometimes having those conversations ineffectively, meaning um, if, you, if you want to add um, there, there is many researchers, and I don't necessarily agree with this view, but uh, you know, there are many researchers that do gender studies. Let's say, you know, when, when you do um, things in pharmacology or do, you do things in medicine, for example, you would, there's one variable that we all measure, which is gender, right? It's like this, uh, you know, uh, uh, are you generically a man or a woman? And, and, and gender is one of these 
you know, binary variables that everyone in many data sets in the world, in, clin in clinical data sets exist. And it's, it seems to be something that actually matters that correlates in predictable things, but yet gender identity um, or, you know, or sex actually, uh, it's, 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 it's quite a different thing. And I think people that are very well versed on this understand that, but then I think the, many of the anti-bias movements have kind of like moved into a direction where it's almost like, um, you know, like, like in, because framing, putting people in a box, in a category can become dangerous under certain circumstances. Some people try to push to not have any, any categorical variables. And, but, but, but interestingly, instead of creating a continuous variable, they create like N categories. So you now see, you know, which again, I think it's great from a, from starting point, you know, the fact that we say, uh, you know, uh, all these, all these different, you know, um, all these different uh, colors that, that gender identity and, and you know, can, can take into shape and form. I think, you know, it, it, you know, it, it can take many shapes and forms for sure. But does it actually then need to be categorized in like 18 different, you know, states? Because the thing is that then that means that you need to, you know, put 18 different states in all your data to say men and women because you don't, you know, because this, you know, putting people in only two categories is dangerous because that may, you know, bias them to be considered different in society or whatever things that they don't want to be perceived on, which is absolutely fine subjectively. But, but, then, but then you can enter into this almost like bad problem where now that you have 18 classes of gender identity, then you can arguably also have in infinite ones. And, and so I think, I think people need to be smart in these discussions by, by then if there is this problem of categorization, then let's just actually flip the switch and say, oh, make this a continuous variable. Like, why do you even care about amplifying the categories? And, and, and those discussions, I think are those discussions, the ones that are, are actually gonna move the needle in the right direction towards bias and you know, inclusion and everything. But, the, but it seems to not be the, the conversations that we're kind of having sometimes because the problem is that the people that kind of like reject those, 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 those ideals, I think in, in some sense, I, they're not taking the right time to also think about why people really want to have these 18 categories because it, it really, because there's people that under the situation of two or three categories of gender, they suffer, like people really truly suffer. And so it's, it, you know, and, and to me, and, and I know that this is, you know, different people will have their own views, but, but I think consolidation of the views and the tension that needs to exist on those views, it's important because the tension is gonna basically not allow any one group or any one train of thought to, to dominate. But the problem is that if the conversation doesn't become civil and, and understanding, and, and I have to say more profoundly based on like it, based on fundamental principles, like things that you can step, things that you can base your thought on, like math, for example, or you know, properties of certain types of functions of center, you know, when you start thinking in those terms, I think that's when more you more you can more robustly even address things that look so subjectively and so out of the scope of math, like you know, race and bias. Uh, and, and I think I hope people in, in the future have that conversation. Just so, so you know, one of my, um, kind of one of my works in AI now, now, nowadays is uh, I work a little bit on dermatology and I published this paper on science relational medicine on, on, on new techniques for dermatology. And, 
um, we actually ended up publishing or um, opening this data set, which to this day is the most highly represented representative database of pigmented lesions in the skin of color, um, basically kind of like people of skin of color, which is actually very underrepresented in many dermatological and like medical images uh, databases. And, 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 and these conversations, so, so fairness and bias is very deep to my heart. And, and, and the reality is that if we don't have those robust conversations about how do you actually create things that are useful, frameworks of categorization or of um, talking about things that then move the conversation forward, then that's when you, the conversation stops and then people start getting conflicted and then people don't trust in science or scientists don't trust in the social scientists or the social people that want to, you know, the activists or whatever. So I think, I think at the end of the day, you know, that's really a conversation we need to have. And, and I hope that, that, you know, this type of uh, podcast kind of drives that needle forward. Those are some truly extraordinary points you made. And one sincerely hopes these are the things that are taken forward and all the points that you made as incorporated as we talk about these very pressing issues because a couple of decades back, stem cells became a partisan election issue. And in today's time's last election, some very basic pandemic measures were a partisan political issue. And as we saw, these lead to uh, high rates of mortality, these leads to unwanted deaths and all. So this is not something that can be just brushed off as an academic exercise. It entails, it brings together your earlier points of how scientists also need to communicate their results and all. They need to do it precisely by just publishing in high impact factor journals and garnering citations isn't gonna work. These are things we need yeah. to actively talk about. We need to actively yeah. talk about these revolutionary technologies and the potential impacts on the communities they are being utilized, on the studies that are being carried out. These are not something that just can't be published behind peer-reviewed journals and all with ludicrous subscription yeah. charges, which is a <laughs> topic of discussion for yet another day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you made some really great points and all. So currently in your role as a venture builder, what have you been up to and all? What ventures have you built in these times? And the past year and so has been truly revolutionary as we talked about, marked by a global pandemic on top of all things one so thought the last, the last decade so last decade was already a very strenuous one and all. And on top of it, the decade was ended on a whole pandemic that is still ravaging the world in this new decade and all. So how yeah. has your role as a venture builder shaped up in these very turbulent times? So um, some of these are in stealth mode, but I'll talk to you generally about sort of what we have been building. So for the last year and a half, um, I've been basically collaborating with a very highly diverse and multi-institutional team of people to, to launch uh, you know, entities around um, core concepts in artificial intelligence and healthcare uh, related to um, three, three main fields. Uh, I, I, I have um, digital therapeutics and telemedicine is one. So, so how do you provide access uh, of effective effective access to, 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 to things, uh, to, to basically care that the people need. Um, I've done the, these, um, a, I've been working on two different, uh, with two different uh, groups, one in the area of nutrition. This company is called Beyond Weight, uh, who basically does an AI, uh, we, we do an AI 
uh, backed uh, behavioral nutritional behavioral change change uh, system to basically recognize the things that person the, the the user is basically lacking on from a behavioral perspective to then latch on those so that they can do the the nutritional changes that will be most beneficial for their their health. So so in that case, imagine you know nutritionists can can tell you about you know putting a diet you know having a new diet but then you know is is that actually going to encourage you to change to to adopt those changes it's, it's usually the case is no uh there's some behavioral changes that people need to have and in fact behavioral change um you know medicine focus on the behavioral change seems to be very uh very effective against many chronic diseases to like improve the healthcare of, of patients and nutrition is not an exception so this is one Another one is called medical. So in medical, what we're doing is uh, we have put together databases and AI systems that allow for patients to easily navigate through an interview process that will allow them to present all their symptoms and to take all the pictures that they need to have in order to create almost like an information package that then they can send to a doctor to get like a diagnosis faster. So the problem today with telemedicine is that either it's live or asynchronous, not live. So the, the, the not live one, the asynchronous version, it's actually cheaper, tends to be cheaper uh, overall because doctors can check many, you know, in their own time and whenever they want, they can check cases and things like that. The problem is that um, because of this asynchronicity, because of the fact that the patient is not in front of the doctor, it, it is very common that the if the, let's say that this is an issue in the skin, like a rash or something, they take a picture. Sometimes the picture is blurry or not well illuminated, or it may, may maybe they are taking a picture of the wrong part. Maybe maybe the doctor actually needs to see the hands because maybe there's a feature also in the hands that they are interested on, things like that. Uh, apart from obviously all the symptoms and the things that the patient wants to say, so we're building systems that have been trained on a lot of clinical data to basically allow for patients to present chief complaints, like the things that they care about that they are concerned about medically and then intelligently walk them through a process of like, oh, take another picture, tell me this, take, a, take again this picture because it's blurry, all closed loop feedback with no doctor interaction so that then the doctor can get like a package. And that company is called Medical and it's operation and um, it's, it's very exciting. And, uh, and the third is, is a larger set of projects that we, we have at the Jamil Clinic for Machine Learning and Intelligence at MIT, which is an organization within MIT uh, funded by the Jamil community um, from Saudi Arabia to, to, um, to, to basically develop a new paradigm of integration of clinical AI with, um, with process-driven AI to basically improve healthcare overall. So, so you can imagine that no single change in healthcare can actually tip the, the, the balance to, to make everything kind of cheaper. So today the US spends more money on healthcare than anything else anywhere, anywhere else in the world. And the reason is not a single thing. It's not only you know, one single surgery, it's not one thing. It's, it's a variety of thousands and thousands of mini things that just increase a little bit. So if you don't really want to make an impact in healthcare today in medicine, you need to provide kind of like more integrative multi-modular solutions that both attack the organizational aspects of healthcare, the operations aspects of healthcare, bed optimization, scheduling, you know, who goes where, triaging, you know? And the clinical aspect is like, oh, people are now having these other diseases. And, you know, sometimes it's very difficult to recognize in 13 minutes what this person has, because today the average time that a doctor has in the US with a new patient is 13 minutes, which is crazy. 
So, 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 so now the world needs a new operating system, a new paradigm for, for engaging into healthcare activities in a way that we can help with artificial intelligence optimize all the different things so that we can then efficient all these things across the board and hopefully drive down cost and drive down everything else. But, but it's, it, this is not a simple solution. It's a widespread, like it's a big, big um, bet that we're doing at MIT, uh, but that we hope to, to do so by adding a bunch of different types of data. Um, you know, we, 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 the same way doctors look at many sources of data to do everything that they do. And the same way a hospital administrator, we consider many things to do the things, the decisions that they do. These systems need to also be capable of being fed all these richness of different information. And one key type of information that no one is really using that we are now using, which is very exciting, is this, what we call patient life stories. So, so something that in the electronic medical record, people um, um, don't have today, it's, uh, you know, in your electronic medical record, you can see your labs and if you had an x-ray and things like that, but you cannot know what's, what's the biggest, you know, happiness moment of the life of that person if they love their dog if if, if their mom died last year you know things that honestly matter <laughs> that a good doctor will like know that maybe you got this rash because you got the stress because two months ago your mom died or something no apart from like all the clinical things and good doctors will know this uh, doctors used to be very humanistic in nature now they're very process driven very outcome driven very boom 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 you know, and so some we are providing now tools um, that allow for doctors to regain that access to the full patient story and all that richness with all these things that perhaps are not in the electronic medical record today, but that make part of who that person is and therefore will make part of how effective treatment and effective interaction with that person will be. And so that's a bigger effort, which is very, very exciting, and we hope to publish soon and and spawn out something something there. Uh, but as you know, COVID-19 happened and I had a little bit of experience on synthetic biology. So I had this pet project uh, on a COVID uh, detection face mask, which just exploded and it's, it's really good. We have basically created a face mask that is, it, it basically has a biological detection mechanism based on CRISPR that is modular enough that it could potentially be used in order to detect not only COVID or COVID variants, but rather arguably any respiratory pathogen uh, in, in a single face mask. And, and, and these, we, we put almost like a cherry on top of this paper that was a little bigger legacy paper, that part of my PhD. And we just kind of like added at the last moment because it was COVID. And, but, but it made it all the way to, to the news and, and, and people is just loving it. I think, I think it's a great concept. And you know, we hope to, to engage in design for manufacturing with the different partners to, to, to really make that happen. And uh, so, so as you know, so as you can see, kind of like, you know, my core is AI in healthcare and I'm trying to make a dent there, but you know, it's interesting because it's through this serendipity where you sometimes see the opportunity and you grasp it. Uh, to, to basically do something that you have learned in the past that, that you didn't think you would need later in your life, but then it basically becomes the, the stuff of legends. And, uh, and, 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 you know, I think this mask is perhaps going to become the stuff of legends, for me at least. And, uh, but, but ultimately, you know, we, we want, as you said, these to be more than a well-published paper, but rather something that could actually change something. Um, 
and we're in talks for that with, with different people. And so, yeah, you know, it's, um, it's, it's exciting times for sure. That's a really fascinating and a wonderful overview of all the things you have been involved with. And these are some really cool, in a sense of the way, but also important as a whole to sort of revolutionize multiple things at a time, right from bringing equity into the uh, sort of a broken down healthcare system to actually revolutionizing the diagnostics pipeline in developing countries and all. These are some truly revolutionary technologies that have the potential to affect millions of human beings and all across the globe and all. That was something really wonderful and something that i'm curious to know you have had a really phenomenal random walk through your life and science and all so and as we were talking about inequities and in science and problems that are out there that people avoid talking about and all there have been issues like gender disparity bias and discrimination against underrepresented groups whether it be of ethnicity or socioeconomic status and all so were you ever at the receiving end of any of that, either in academia or otherwise, or any mentee of yours was there and you had to confront it on their behalf and all? And how has been your experience tackling these really pressing challenges that are there in academia and embedded into it in multiple ways? Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, I certainly think I have. Um, I, I have to say that I, I don't think I've ha had it as bad as, as, other, peop as, as other peers um, of mine, um, especially women. I, I, I really, and especially women of color, <laughs> uh, I think it's, um, it's, it's it, 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 I think there's a little bit of, um, especially in America that it's so multicultural, I think it's, and the places that I've lived, so you know, Baltimore and, you know, Baltimore in, in the Hopkins, you know, kind of campus area, but, uh, but especially Boston and Cambridge, like, I think it's for, for a male of my age, of my, you know, academic, uh, you know, kind of like track record or whatever. I honestly, I have not necessarily felt that I was not being taken seriously because of that. And to be honest, I think being a man kind of like make a, 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 you know, it benefited me in that way. Cause like, I think, I've seen Latin women also, Latinx, you know, uh, women like, you know, perhaps, you know, well, certainly more brilliant than myself, kind of like being, being considered slightly less seriously um, and equally valid ideas. And, and to be honest, you have to take a, you have to, you have to not perpetuate that. So, so to me, I have to say that I've been always surrounded by strong women. And in fact, you know, kind of like the first PIs that I met at MIT that really changed my life, like Martha Gray, are all very strong women. Also, one of the core faculty at the Jamil Clinic, Regina Barcelé, who's like, a, you know, it's a, it's a brilliant woman uh, who, who, who's strong and, you know, achieved. And, and I think, I think that the, 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 you know, if I've felt that I'm on, re on the receiving end, end of bias, to be honest, has seen like, has been on like normal life situations. Like, you know, I go to pick my coffee at a local coffee shop and then the person thinks that I'm like the Uber driver, things like that. But, you know, which probably wouldn't happen if I was from, from you know, a Latino person. <laughs> um, but, but that's, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I, I don't think 
I think less about that than perhaps I should in myself. I certainly notice it in others and then take action if I if I if that's a correct approach. Um, but uh, but 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 in academia I haven't. Now that being said, I kind of really want to talk and stress out that 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 that, that the real problem needs to address ASAP, even if I haven't felt it because or strongly, because if you actually look at the data, the data is conclusive. Is it takes on average. So if you as a male of any ethnicity publish a paper in science, it takes a woman, just by being a, a, by, by being a woman, equivalent of three times that publication output to be considered equally brilliant or achieved in your field. So, so if, I, if I publish something in science or nature or whatever, then they need to have like, you know, this, the same times three, which is crazy. That's not good. And that needs to stop like full stop it's like it's it's you know and then you know and then the other thing that it's a little bit you know things you know we all men we need to you know think about it's you know mansplaining and you know kind of like you know and and i've honestly been victim a little bit about this although no publicly or you know for bad ends to be honest you know but being born in born and raised in mexico city there is this like you know i mean there's a macho culture that permeates. And even though I was always surrounded by women and I never had like, you know, my mom was my figure. And so very respectful of women in that sense. Uh, it's, it, it, you know, it's, um, we have all, you know, been part of, you know, maybe repeating ideas that other people, you know, and, and I think we have to acknowledge that different ethnicities and different people are just more sensitive uh, to, to those because it has been so many years of a struggle of like the same BS all the time of like not being taken seriously, of other people taking their ideas, of not receiving the equal pay, of needing to work harder for the same output, for the same salary, all that stuff that 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 is not honestly nowadays I don't think it's about it, it, you know this basically balancing everything out. It, it's really you have to kind of like balance it by tipping the balance in the other direction for a while at least. Um, and I'm not talking about retributions and all these things because th those are more sort of perhaps more controversial things. But um, but but really, I think it's uh, it's it's in our benefit both for scientists and for me to that even though I haven't I I, I don't feel subjectively that I've been on the tipping side you know on the on the um, accepting side of things of racial bias or ethnic bias. I certainly know that I have. Uh, but 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 I had it not that bad, and therefore it's my responsibility to then, you know, spread that love that maybe luck has given me a little bit. Because if not, then I would be very ungrateful with the luck that I've had <laughs> uh, of not having experienced this. Because it sucks. It would suck. Like if if I have felt that all my life, and I know many people that do, for good reasons. So 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 yeah. So I think it's uh you know. I, I kind of wanted to talk in, the, in that terms, even though even though I, I'm perhaps not the best person to 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 tell an anecdote about this. Uh, certainly, you know, uh, you you have strong women from uh, different ethnicities here in your podcast, so so I bet that they will have better stories than that than, than I am. And I'm super, you know, I, I look forward to hearing about them, to know about them. Those are some truly great points you made, and as you acknowledge, it's very important to be aware of our own position in academia and in life too and all before we try to sort of contextualize 
the lived experiences of other people and you made some really really phenomenal points and something uh, a very phenomenal guiding light in your life of course has been your mother and who have been some other mentors who have inspired you over the years and have played an instrumental role in what you are currently Yeah I mean as I mentioned um my my advisor um main PhD advisor um Jim Jim Collins um who's not only a brilliant scientist of very similar he's a physicist but he in a way has approached many different projects that would traditionally be viewed as outside his scope of um initial experience so in a way I feel very like him in that that way uh but he is also a great a family uh man meaning like he's a great father um a great husband like beautiful family and 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 just like a deep deep love to their families and uh to 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 his family that i just i i you know i think it's something absolutely essential important in any nature of some any human scientist or not brilliance is just half of the equation you need to be brilliant uh scientific brilliance is just half of the equation i i don't believe in these like archetypical like oh scientists you know brilliant scientists don't care about anything you know about uh it's they need to be good human beings too if if not then you're not actually understanding the the, the meaning of anything uh you know and and i think he does so so certainly he does that uh martha gray uh regina bersley like you know Bob Langer who was also in my um in my physics committee you know one of the most published engineers in in history great man um you know it's uh Domitila Delvecchio who's a brilliant mechanical engineer faculty that you know really encouraged me to move in you know kind of in any direction that and i think looking at these uh people um that just you know they they kind of treated me like equal but then yet they they were they were always pushing me forward forward um and and at times maybe you can think about you know MIT is a place where you get hit sometimes by peers and and faculty hit in the you know not uh, you know uh, physical way but rather you know you you get like hit until you're if if the analogy is that you're a sword like a you know like a like a samurai sword you get like hit hard and put into cold water and then in the heat and then until your shot your blade is like razor sharp I think MIT is a place like this and 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 sometimes that requires different different um you know mindsets to 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 um gain knowledge out of that experience but I have to say that they made that process manageable and then they made that process in a way that I could uh, you know actually receive it effectively um to learn um you know very japanese way I guess uh and uh, and 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 yeah i'm grateful for that obviously my mom um uh, my my uh, you know my stepdad who's um been married with my mom for 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 years now he's also a, like a you know beautiful man great you know great mind and i i have to say that we didn't mention too much about him but but we had really you know nice philosophical conversations i i'm very passionate about many you know philosopher reading philo- about philosophers and just philosophical thought and and he was certainly one that introduced me to to the big ones and and you know, certainly even like you know people like Chomsky who was at MIT so it was like amazing to 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 be at the same place like Chomsky was you know teaching whatever um uh 
and and yeah, and I think you know, to be honest, also even though she's you know same, my same age, my wife, um, you know, as a Latin ex woman living in the U.S., doing a PhD or having graduated PhD from Harvard in a sp in public health, um, you know, I think I've learned from her to really to, to understand two, two things what you know the things that matter in life obviously by being you know my wife but um and, and teaching me all that you know stuff but but i think more fundamentally professionally that sensitivity that i think i have now towards racial bias uh, you know ethnic bias a, a diversity and inclusion honestly i have to say it comes very highly informed for from the experiences that she has felt or that she knows exist and has much more nuance in why they exist and why how they present. I think I'm a better person just by just knowing her and obviously even better by having married her. And so in a way, I honestly think she's a little bit of my more like human level mentor that it just also happens to be a brilliant scientist who can, you know, I can bounce some ideas, you know, before going to sleep. So, you know, best deal ever. Um, so yeah, is that, that's it. Those are some really great mentors and all some people who we all can be inspired by, especially from the lessons you derive from them that you elucidated so wonderfully. And this has been a terrific conversation on you through your fantastic random walks through life and science and all. And finally, as a random walks podcast tradition, which three people would you like to come and divulge their own experience in a random world? Hmm. I think um, I'm, I'm trying to think the best. So I, I, I want to introduce you to a brilliant engineer friend of mine. Uh, his name is uh, Timothy Cassis. Um, he's, um, he has a very similar background that I am. And we have published together and he's just like absolutely the sweetest person ever and just like sheer brilliance uh she was a he was at mit for 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 a long time and now he's part of this startup so um you know i i know he will have great stories to tell he was born i believe in uh, syria so he used to be a refugee and then he moved uh to to london and you know he has had like you know then to Canada and then the US and, you know, and, and he, he made his way all the way to uh, US citizenship, uh, being a scientist. So I think he, he has a, a very interesting, compelling story uh, along the way, random work. So the other one would be, you know, probably Jim Collins, uh, you know, as, as you have a podcast, um, um, George Church, I think Jim Collins could be like a great, great, great um, uh, addition. And, uh, I mean, I think Bob Langer also maybe like a great random walk. Although, um, you know, I think it's uh, it it's it, you know it's certainly certainly you know a crazy ride from his perspective. So I think it will be great to hear. Um, and if I had may add one addition, there is this one professor that I think it's um, could be really interesting. His name is Jeff Carp. Um, he's at Harvard and I think he has some really nice random walks too. Um, so yeah. 
those are some really great nominations thank you thank you for coming and divulging your experience in a very yeah. fascinating random book let me actually add, add one because i you know maybe you know domitila del vecchio uh from 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 the mechanical engineering department uh, italian woman great mathematician um also so sorry for interrupting No, that's absolutely terrific nominations, and thank you for coming and indulging us in a very fascinating random work that truly epitomizes the essence of the podcast. Thank you so much, and you know I love this Boltzmann, uh, you know, uh, idea. Like I, I love the title of your podcast. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, obviously I hope your audience knows that you're referring to Boltzmann's <laughs> random work. Um, I hope. And, uh, and 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 you know thank you thank you for having me and you know it's it's great to be here great great to be here.